This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In a world where overspending, debt, and keeping up with the Joneses rules us all, where the voices from the merchants, restaurants, and credit companies lord over the common man. Out of the darkness, like a beacon of hope, comes a new voice. A voice that's rich and creamy, like your favorite butter, and delicious, like cheeseburger pizza on your diet cheat day. It's The Stacking Benjamin Show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is National Juggling Day. I've been practicing all day. Check out how I can juggle all the great stuff we're doing on today's show. First, we welcome the co-author of the financial classic book, Your Money or Your Life, Vicki Robin. We'll also talk about a movement that helped people pay down tons of student loan debt from the college investor we welcome, Robert Farrington. We won't stop there, though. We'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Karen, who wonders about how best to use her health savings account. And we'll answer a letter from Jason, whose employer sent him too much money. Should he send that back? Jason, yo, dude, over here. Little help? Little help over here, Jason? Okay. All right. And now, two guys who we all know are the juggling clowns on this here podcast, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I'm the juggler, he's the clown. Welcome to Wednesday on the show. Across from me is, uh, where's the big red nose, man? It's the one and only OG. You didn't even let me do it. I was going to go, honk, honk. It's <laughs> so close. So, so close. close. Vicky Robin on today's show. Your money or your life. Sounds like a holdup, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, somehow, sometimes this feels like a holdup, doesn't well, it? Well, and that's actually what she's kind of referring to, is that uh, philosophically, things might have to change for a lot of people. A lot of people live by this book, swear by this book, and a lot of our audience I know has never read it, so I'm very excited to have Vicky Robin coming down to the basement today. I'm also excited, OG, that this episode of Stacky Benjamins brought to you by Lexington Law. How about that? For a free credit report summary and credit repair consultation, head to lexingtonlaw.com forward slash SB and brought to you by Magnify Money, the place where you go when you're looking for better savings accounts, checking accounts, credit card options, consolidation loans, and more. Mandy Woodruff on the, our uh, SB Live last week 
said when it comes to consolidating your debt, you know, if you're going for low interest rate, these balance transfer credit cards are the way, the way to go. But she cautioned everybody, know thyself, right? <laughs> yes. Because how many times have you seen somebody do the balance transfer and then they run up the old card and the new card? Mm. Not good. I know people like that intimately. <laughs> Consolidation law might be the way to go for those people then. Uh, so that they uh, either that or just send them right to Lexington Law. But we'll, we'll start at Magnify Money, stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money. We got a great show. We got some fantastic headlines. Robert Farrington waiting in the wings. So let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. Just when you thought the fiduciary rule was dead, of course, the Department of Labor fiduciary rule is dead. There's a new one, though. A sneak peek at new SEC advice standards sparks hope and concern. The sneak peek, the Securities and Exchange Commission's offer to its pending proposal on investment advice standards has sparked both hope and concern among investor advocates and industry representatives. In a notice posted on its website last Wednesday, the agency indicated will release a regulation today consisting of three parts, a disclosure document for registered investment advisors and brokers that summarizes their relationship with investors, a rule that sets a broker advice standard and an, quote, interpretation of the standard of conduct for investment advisors. Quote, the rule appears to have the three main components it needs to be a good rule, said Barbara Roper, Director of Investor Protection at the Consumer Federation of America. The $64,000 question, or the $17 billion question, is whether the standard of conduct they propose is sufficient to reform harmful broker-dealer business practices. The $17 billion to which Ms. Roper referred is the amount of investor harm caused annually by broker conflicts when working with customers in retirement Allegedly accounts, annually. according to a government study. Mm-hmm. Uh, that report undergirded, undergirded, haven't heard that word in a long time since uh, grandma used it. Ought six. <laughs> undergirded the Labor Department's fiduciary rule, which requires brokers to act in the best interest of clients in retirement accounts. The Department of Labor rule partially implemented last summer was vacated by a recent split decision in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so it goes. SEC coming out with uh, some additions. OG, what do you think? New rule, new day? It's just so terribly frustrating that the main issue of this still refuses to be, or people still refuse to address the major thing, I guess. So the first part was the Department of Labor, right? So it was a big power grab. This is my take on it by the Department of Labor saying, how do we still stay relevant as these trillions of dollars that move from ERISA-style plans, 401ks, to IRA plans uh, as baby boomers retire? And they want their pound of flesh, so they come up with a rule. And nobody can agree to enforce it or how to enforce it or who's supposed to enforce it. Meanwhile, all of these companies, everybody from the biggest to the smallest investment firm spent millions, hundreds of millions of dollars retrofitting their entire organization for a law that doesn't exist. Now, some people would say, well, that helped the consumer, right? You know, because now different companies are more alert to that, you know, advice, conflict and all that sort of stuff and put policies and procedures in place to to shield uh, investors from that. But then just last week, (laughs) we've got a whole different set of attorneys going, yeah, you forced me into that thing. And because you didn't charge me enough commissions, the fees were more. <laughs> so now you're in trouble again, right? It's there, there, Everyone has a freaking axe to grind. And, and now this is the SEC, who I think, by the way, is 
where this should originate from. But the SEC coming in and saying, well, here, well, you know, now we want, uh, uh, you know, our castle and we want to, you know, control our fiefdom or whatever. This is very simple. It doesn't have to be 7,000 pages and cost billions and billions and billions of dollars to like try to solve. Do the right thing for everyone always. Like that could be the fiduciary law. Why does it have to be just be, well, just for retirement accounts? Right. So, so I, I can screw you with your non-qualified money, but I can't for, you know, but the problem is that there's too many individual stakeholders that think of the pie is too small, right? I mean, to use yeah. as many sure. business analogies as I possibly can. You know, I mean, there's there's the, the the insurance industry is like, well, nobody will buy annuities. Yeah, because your products suck, most of them, and they screw people over. And so why don't you make a better product so people will use them? And you're starting to see that, right? There's now companies like... Blueprint. Yeah, companies like Blueprint that are taking the foundation of that idea, which is solid, and saying, well, let's take away all the bull crap that's around there and make it, you know, usable for people. Uh, anyway, so whatever. Yeah. So, you know, this may or may not pass. And a year from now, we'll find out that it did kind of, sort of. But then somebody with a bigger pocketbook than the other guy will come in and fight it from a different angle. It's and- like the Department of Labor rule. It's going to sit there in limbo, half done. Maybe, maybe it's a rule. Maybe it's not which is fantastic. You've got a bunch of uh, attorneys at this point frothing at the mouth, I'm sure. Oh, well, the attorneys are the ones that are winning. No offense to those who are in attorney land in our listenership, but, uh, you know, they're the, they're the winners. They're, they're like, well, law, no law, doesn't matter, still 500 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, and that's why, that's why I mean, in theory, I like your idea of just do the right thing all the time. The problem is, is think about that in a court of law. Like, how do you disprove that something isn't? I remember so many people early in my career that would dance, just flip and dance through these horrible, horrible products. I remember, and I'm not going to get into this too much, but I remember one horrible product that I was told that I should be recommending. And I remember getting this whole, like how to explain it on a whiteboard. And man, it was genius. It was just absolute genius. And I explained it to a few clients before one day I'm driving down the road on a Saturday and I'm like, this whole damn thing's flawed. Like this isn't, this is smoke and mirrors. And the dude teaching me this stuff knows it's smoke and mirrors. So how do you disprove that person? How do you prove intent? You know what I mean? Proving intent is the hard part. No, an annuity inside an IRA. I just wanted those uh, guaranteed features that came with it. And Hey, there's some great guaranteed features that come along with some of these annuities that some salesman can look you in the eye and honestly say, yeah, I think this was the right thing. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it, it, it is a flawed system. Like you said, I think it's always boils down to, you got to see where the bread's buttered. You know what I mean? Yes. You got to figure out where, and maybe that's the answer. Maybe the answer is you got to sit, sit with your client and say, here's how much I make on every single solitary thing that I recommend for you. Yeah, I think if there's a disclosure on how you get paid and what not, it not pays. Not a 7,000 page one that you can stuff in the it back. Could, it could be on like a single page. It could easily you know. be. What? Why can't it just be you buy this, I get paid this, right? 
I mean, it, and if it pays over time, like some of these mutual funds, like a B share mutual fund, not to get too much into mutual fund spaghetti, but like a B share mutual fund, it, it, it's still, you can do that in four sentences. Yeah, absolutely. Do the right thing. Yep. And I think there's, there's a lot more to come here, unfortunately. I know this is just the beginning. We're, we're, oh, it's another opening salvo. And, and yes. then FINRA is going to come in a different you know, uh, uh, regulatory organization is going to come and go, wait a second, we, we want to be in charge of this. And they're going to have their rule. And and then, uh, you know, who knows? It's DOL come back and say, but we, we want ours. You know, it's chaos. And in our second headline, a piece from MSN News is student loan debt, the next financial crisis. Uh, this written by Lorelei Salas. Uh, says, up until two months ago, I was carrying a student loan debt balance of over $130,000. My monthly payments were just over $1,250 per month, a month's rent for many people in New York City. It took me 14 years to pay off about $20,000 on my loans, but that didn't make a dent with the amount of interest that was accruing each year. And the piece goes on to ask the question I think that a lot of us are asking, is student loan debt the next financial crisis? And a guy who's been actively trying to solve that crisis walking down to the basement. It's our good friend from the college investor, Robert Farrington. Man, what are you doing here? Hey, how's it going? You show up just in the nick of time. I love it. <laughs> I love coming down to your basement. A little creepy, but I like it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if creepy, but I like it as a compliment, but we'll take whatever <laughs> we could get. So student loan debt, the next crisis Absolutely. It is a huge crisis that uh, it has so many different facets that it is very worrisome. Now, you did something about the last month. We totally missed it. On, usually we try to get out in front of stuff. Now we're behind it. But this shouldn't stop people. You had a big movement. Tell me what you did when it comes to student loans. It's okay, because now I can say it was successful right. and not come onto the show and say it was a failure. Right. So last month, we encouraged our readers and as many people as we could in the community to see how much student loan debt we could pay off. And we hit $1.4 million in student loan debt paid off last month alone from our readers taking action on their student loans. That's fantastic. And so after those two people paid off their student loans, what happened then? <laughs> <laughs> then we encouraged another 3,437 people to try to do something. Was it 3,400 people that took part? We had 3,400 people that took part in the movement. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Any stories that stick out to you from people paying down debt aggressively? Dude, there's been so many. It's fun this time of year because this is tax refund season. So I would say a lot of people put their tax refunds to their loans. A great there's idea. a lot of people out there side hustling, getting some extra income towards their loans. It's bonus season for a lot of companies. Um, so they are putting their bonuses towards their loans. And then, you know, there's a few people that had some big discoveries, finding a new repayment plan, maybe refinancing their loan that were able to get some big wins with their student loan debt. Yeah. What do you tell people that say they can't afford to pay down their student loans? Because I know we have that a ton in America. So the worst thing you could do is ignore it. Don't defer it. Don't go into forbearance. Don't put it off. Get on an income-driven repayment plan. Make low monthly payments that you can afford. And even if it takes you 20 or 25 years, that's better than going into default. That's better than pushing it off because the loan balance will just grow into enormous proportions if you don't. What about the – there's tons of uh, debt refinance programs out there for people. Consolidate, refinance your plan. What do you think about that? It could work for you. We think it only works for about 10% of borrowers because if you're on an income-driven repayment plan, if you're trying to get any type of student loan forgiveness, if you refinance, you lose those options. So 
if you are in the 10% that aren't, you're making the standard plan of payment, you're getting aggressive with your loan debt, well, see if you can save some money refinancing. But for the other 90% of people, you should probably just focus on lowering your monthly payment to something that's affordable and getting them paid off the old fashioned way. Fantastic stuff as always, Robert. But where do I get more information? Go to studentloandebtmovement.com. It'll redirect you to all the best resources. You can see the leaderboard. You can see what people paid off, and you can learn everything you could want to know about your student loan debt. I love the fact that we didn't get involved until after it was a success. That's what I like. Hey, hey it's, it's funner to share, too, instead of like, please, please come. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. Hey, I'd be remiss before you go. You've got a new podcast that I didn't we even do. know about. I can't believe I didn't know about it. That's all right. You're still busy creating your own. It's cool. But we have the College Investor Audio Show. You can find it on all your favorite podcasting, uh, whatever you prefer. But it's a short format. It's our blog articles transformed into audio content. So if you like short format shows, if you don't want to read what I'm talking about, just come over and listen to it. I'll save you some time. (laughs) Mom's not a big reader, so I think that's going to work for her. Love it. That's fantastic. Robert Farrington, thanks for hanging out for a second. Definitely. Thanks for letting me stop by. Big thanks to Robert for stopping by. Isn't that exciting, paying off that much money in student loan debt? That's a, that's a good day when you get your student loans paid. It is. Uh, I'll let you know. I, I don't remember who the comedian was who said that uh, he was in a, and this is like back in, the, back in the 90s, he's talking about how he's on this safari. There's no cell towers anywhere. And way over the horizon, he sees this, this Jeep driving toward him and the jeep finally reaches him and his band of people he's like did they go mr smith and he says uh yes and he said mr smith we have a telephone call for you and they set up like this whole satellite system hand him the big bag phone the dude takes the phone and says uh yes says this is susan from sally may <laughs> exactly yeah i think the big lesson that robert's talking about is that look at these income repayment plans i think uh, you might have some opportunity there before looking at consolidation. And then uh, second, wondering if your advisors are doing the right thing, start off with asking if they're a fiduciary. Don't wait for a law. Ask. If you're wondering how much your advisor gets paid, ask. So excited that uh, this woman is about to come down to the basement. For more than 25 years, your money or your life has been considered the go-to book for taking back your life by changing your relationship with money. Back in the 90s, the book became a huge hit when it was discovered by a little-known talk show host named Oprah Winfrey. Probably never heard of her, OG. Vicki Robin is a prolific and well-known social innovator, writer, and speaker. In addition, she's been at the forefront of the sustainable living movement launching projects such as Sustainable Seattle, the 10-Day Local Food Challenge, Transition, Whit Bay, and the Center for a New American Dream. She's been all over the... Where hasn't she been? New York Times, NPR, People Magazine even. She lives on an island outside of Seattle, but right now she is coming down to the basement. So excited to talk to Vicki Robin. And coming down to the basement, I can't believe it. Vicki Robbins here. How are you? I'm great. Nice down here. <laughs> well, thank you. Most people call it a little bit creepy, so I'm, I'm very happy that you didn't say that. That's good. It's an upgrade from mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pl- Let me ask you this, though. Maybe this is semantics. Is your book 
a money book or is this really a philosophy book in disguise? It's both. I just really have to say that it's uh, putting money in service to your values rather than your life in service to money. When we originally, the first draft we did of this book and we tried to get it published and it was in the 1980s, we couldn't get any publisher interested because they said there's no place in the bookstore for a book that's about money and ethics. <laughs> so, you know, and then we were discovered by Oprah and then, you know, story over. But it's about both. And it, it's really interesting because if you use your money life, if you use your, like your daily spending, you know, you're buy, about to buy your coffee and you, you sort of like have this moment, you say, is this worth the hours of my life I invested to get the money to have it so that I could buy this coffee? Is it going to make me that many hours of my life happier? You know, is it going to make me that much more on my path of, you know, whatever my inspirational path is? You ask those questions. That's the crossover point. It's like at the moment of spending, you ask, is this worth it? Is this going to buy me a life I love? Not is it going to buy me a cup of coffee, but is that coffee going to make me happy? Well, yes, of course, my coffee makes me happy, but then try it on something else. You know? <laughs> right. Try it on, you know, the next pair of shoes. You just look in the bottom of your closet and you say, like, I have shoes, by the way. I have enough shoes. So you ask yourself these questions and that's the crossover thing. Your money actually, you know, we used to say this is like Buddhism. Meditating on every penny is like meditating on every breath. <laughs> I want to dig into that in a second, but I'm very interested in the origin story. I, I just have this feeling that Vicky and Joe creating this book, like one of you were either walking down the street or you're, I don't know, you have it. Something happens where you have this aha. And I've never heard that story. How did your personal philosophy change to become what's written in your money or your life? Well, I think Joe and I have different origin stories and he's been gone for 20 years, so he yeah. can't tell you his. But right. I would say he grew up in Harlem, you know, and he ate welfare cheese and his dad was in a TV ward and his mom never learned English. She was Venezuelan and he was in Spanish Harlem in New York, you know. So basically his wake up call was looking around his situation in life and realizing, you know, these people aren't happy. But then he got to work on Wall Street. By a fluke, he had a friend who invited him in and he looked at the people on Wall Street and said, they're not happy either. So he had this like, wait a second, we're supposed to spend our whole lives on money and it's not making and nobody that I've met is happy. This doesn't make any sense to me. And so he decided that he would do his money life like his military service. You know, it's you put some time in on that thing, but it's not the point of life. So that was that was his thing. And I think for me, I am. Um, I wangled. <laughs> I wangled my junior year in Spain. I got everybody to sign off it in my university because I really I'm an experiencer. If I can put my body someplace, I start to learn, you know, so sitting in a college classroom was not it for me. So there I am in Spain and I realized I have a limited amount of money for this year. I mean, that's all I have. So I realized the less money I spend, the more adventure I can have. Oh, that was like the aha for me of like, I connected up frugality and freedom. That's, it's funny you say that because I had two thoughts right away. A friend of mine in college went to Europe and he had a flight, an open ticket flight from Amsterdam, but he got to the bottom of uh, Italy. It's funny because I haven't thought about this, this story in 20 years. Uh, he got to the bottom of Italy, to the bottom of the boot, and he ran out of money. 
And he said he actually had the most fun from the time he ran out of money getting back to Amsterdam. It became this adventure, right? He got food from strangers. He talked to all kinds of people. He, of course, things could have went poorly. Things didn't. But it, it ended up being this, he had this sense of life that he didn't have when he just used money to solve his problem. Absolutely. I mean, there was years that I lived, there were six years of my life when I lived on a, a, just over $100 a month. I lived in the boonies and in northern Wisconsin and grew a garden and, you know, I didn't hunt, but I knew how to butcher animals and stuff like that. And it was like the less money I had, the more I had to learn. Now, I'm not saying poverty is ennobilizing in this way, but right. I realized that I just made it my business to not throw money at anything. You know, so I learned how to make booze from beets. You know, I just, I learned everything. You know, and my favorite quote is from Helen Keller that life is either a great adventure or it's nothing. And so for me, that what people might call minimalism isn't just like having a bed on the floor and two books and a vase with a daisy. No, no. For me, it's, it's that fierce creativity that comes when you're actually face to face with actual life and something from you inside you, not just inside your wallet has to like come forth and do something with it. Well, and to get there, you know, you draw this distinction between consumerism and happiness. I mean, the theme of unhappiness and consumerism resonates throughout your book. I mean, that, that really the whole first half of the book is this um, discussion about how more consumerism doesn't make you happier. In fact, one of my favorite phrases in the entire book, Vicki, is to be frugal means to have a high joy-to-stuff ratio. And I've never thought about my life in terms of joy-to-stuff ratio. Like, I love ratios, being a math nerd, <laughs> but joy-to-stuff ratio, I dig that. How did you come up with that? Well, you know, we were trying to redeem the word frugality back, you know, a hundred years ago, frugality to say somebody was, that was the sexy thing. If you, if there was match.com in the early 1900s, <laughs> you know, somebody would put frugality as one of their qualities and they would be flooded with dates you know, right. because a frugal person was a wise resource manager is somebody who could take the resources you have and make a wonderful life out of it. Somebody who could support the children, et cetera. And so frugality had lost its glitter because if you're frugal, you won't buy more than you need. And that doesn't support the consumer culture. And I just want to make a point about consumerism because, because we're all consumers. We consume from morning to night, you sure. know, whether it's consuming food or products or whatever. Consumerism is a religion of consumption. It's consumption for consumption's sake. It's saying that the act of consuming something, the act of having it itself is happiness, and it's not. So I'm talking about the religion of consumerism, not the fact that we consume. So in that chapter in the book, chapter six, where I'm trying to like pitch, <laughs> pitch frugality, I had to think of as many ways of talking about it as possible. And came up with that phrase of having a high joy to stuff ratio. Well, I don't like the phrase laugh out loud. Like I think people throw that around, LOL, laugh out But I laughed out loud. I was right next to my spouse, Cheryl, and she's like, what's so funny? And then I told her, she didn't think it was as funny as I did because she's not as much of a money nerd as I am, but it was interesting. Early in the book, you have another thing on this idea of the unhappiness that a lot of people that worship at the alter consumerism face and it's this life rating scale where you rate people on a scale of one to five. But then below that is a monthly income scale. 
and where people at different income levels end up there. And what's what's amazing is is that people living on zero to fifteen hundred dollars a month are every bit as happy as within a few couple points of people forty five hundred to six thousand a month, and way happier it looks like than people living on over $6,000 a month. This came from uh, when Joe and I did the live seminars back in the 1980s, and we would give people a worksheet. And on the worksheet, there would be this life rating scale. And then there would be another part of the worksheet. It would be, you know, what's your income? And another part of the worksheet was how much money do you think it would take to make you happy? It was sort of like trick questions, and then we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have smartphones back then. We didn't have the internet. <laughs> so during the the workshop, uh, we'd collect those sheets and we would do these calculations, and we would find that no matter what people's income levels, this life rating scale from one to five, you know, one is miserable, five is you know just like peel me off the ceiling happy. People on average in every income bracket were just under three. In other words, they weren't even really just basically happy. They were just literally slightly miserable on the miserable (laughs) side. And yet everybody said no matter what their income, the amount that would make them happy was 50% more than they had now. Everybody. So you could like sit there and you could look at the person next to you and realize that person has the amount of money I think would make me happy, and they're no happier than me. It was just this marvelous moment of utter silence when people realized that they had invested so much of their lives in getting more money so that they could be happy, and that whole formula was a failure. It's so powerful. I just can't imagine sitting in this room full of people and having this big aha. Well, you got to experience it all the time doing these workshops. I mean, you must have seen people's heads explode as you're looking around the room. <laughs> Fortunately not, because we would have to clean up. <laughs> yeah, but. Right, right. <laughs> I want to ask, because you're also known, obviously, for people plotting for the wall chart, right? People plotting their income and their expenses and really making it, making money not a taboo. I think that's something that you guys really pioneered and were out there talking about a lot. Is it the tactile, I wonder this, Vicki, is it the tactile part of just physically at the end of the month, writing that down or writing down your expense that's the important part? Is it the thought? Is it this communion between the thought and the physical? Where's the magic in that? Because clearly it works. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I mean, originally it was all very tactile. Like Joe used to carry a little book and his, yeah. you know, he had a pocket protector and a little <laughs> pen and he would do his little book. I had a little index card in my wallet. And there was something about that, like writing down every expense that really, it did induce a massive set of consciousness. Now you, I pay for things with my debit card. So my bank is keeping track of my money. I think the magic, though, is this idea of money as life energy, that you do a a life energy calculation. You know, you say like, okay, I think I'm making $30 an hour, but when you consider that I'm not working 40 hours a week, I actually have my commute, I have all this extra time that I invest from my personal life into having that work life, I may be working 60 hours a week when you come right down to it, all things considered. And then you know, of that $30 an hour, you got to consider that I'm going to pay taxes. I have car fare, daycare. I have a lot of expenses associated with the fact that I have to go to a job. I'm not home all day. And so when you do that calculation, most people realize that their real hourly wage 
is maximally half what they think they're earning and usually a quarter. So that $30 an hour could get down to $10 an hour. So now you have a real figure. I'm earning $10 for this one hour of my precious life, a third of which I'm going to spend sleeping, by the way. So that's like, take that <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, so you it really forces you to think about who am I? What do I want really in life? Not do I want the next trinket, but what do I really want in life? And how can I have every dollar I spend invested in the life I want? I have um, with a one of the bloggers, Grant Sabatier of Millennial Money, mm-hmm. uh, he and I produced a platform. I would say he and I, he did the platform. <laughs> it's just like, you know, he, he's the brilliant one. <laughs> it, it, we have a life energy calculator. So people can go on there and they can put in their numbers and they can figure out what they're trading an hour of their life for. Mm-mm-mm. And so then you go out and you spend money and you go like, oh, my God, that cost me 10 hours. See, I don't think money is real for us. I think it's all an abstraction. Well, that's what I was going to ask is if, you you know, you talk about the debit card, it seems like the debit card actually makes it harder. To get a sense of things? Yeah, absolutely. But so, yeah, so that's just the tracking part of it. Right. And then we suggest that at the end of the month, you take a look at all your expenses. You sort them out in categories. Okay, grocery food, restaurant food junk food from the machine at work, you know, whatever those categories are, clothes for work, clothes for running, clothes for clubbing, whatever your (laughs) categories are, you break it down. I mean, we say no shame, no blame, no shame, no blame. Doesn't matter. You know, like what, you know, we used to say, you know, if you want to be a cat burglar, maybe you have to have a category for the shoes, you know, really quiet. (laughs) You got to have the quiet shoes. Yeah. And so you, you, for each category, you total up how much you spent and then you translate that into life energy. Ah, my cat burglar shoes, you know, like I spent seven hours of my life to have those shoes. You know, did they make me seven hours more happy? Did they take me in the direction I want to go? Because you might be a cat burglar just on the side, but what you really want to do is be a doctor, you know, whatever. You know, so you really have to ask these questions. That's where the power is, is if you are willing to ask the questions of each spending category or could be each purchase, although that's kind of like down to a granularity that most people don't want to do. But just is this making me actually happy in proportion to not just happy like, oh, yeah, that was happy in proportion to how, how much of my one wild and precious life I invested in getting that thing. And is it taking me where I want to go? So that induces, you know, these existential questions, where am I going? (laughs) You know, what is my life about? It's so cool because people work on self-knowledge, but they work on self-knowledge over in their weekend workshop realm. They're not working on self-knowledge at the, you know, at the dealership for the car, but that's a perfect place for, you know, spiritual awakening. Because you ask, who do I think I am as this car? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. What is this car really when it comes to me? Which I don't know what that says about my 2003 Chevy Trailblazer, but I, I don't. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a 2002 Honda Insight. There you go. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> that says that both of us are frugal. <laughs> that's right. We do not like car payments. Uh, how, how fun is it to see a new edition of the book out? Oh, it's very satisfying, but it's satisfying because of the process. I mean, I've connected with 
this community of bloggers and people on this path, I, I had no idea, no idea that this whole fire financial independence community existed. And it wasn't until after I started and somebody told me about Reddit and I found the financial independence. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. And then I started finding out, I found out about the Chautauquas, these week long workshops. And I started meeting people and and, uh, I met Christy and Bryce of Fiery Millennials. Uh, I think it's Fiery Millennial. And um, Christy said, oh my God, you're Eve of Adam and Eve, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it's just been so much fun to meet people who are on this path. So that's been fun. And also fun is to think about what ancillary tools can we create so that there's a lot more FI educators? You know, I see people on this financial independence path and they think the whole goal is to get financially independent. That's not, that's the entry level into another whole phase of life called what am I now going to do with my 24 hours a day now that I don't have to go to work? I find that what a lot of people do once they're free is they start to tell other people, just as Joe and I did, about how they did it. When you're getting toward FI, you're sort of under wraps. You don't want your boss to know that you're going to quit in six months. Right, right. <laughs> but you know, once you've passed through that, then the drive to share this path with other people arises. So part of the fun for me is to create materials that will be supportive of people who want to educate their friends or, you know, maybe go into high schools and colleges and give lectures or whatever. That's the fun for me is to build this community and build these tools. Because honestly, darling, I am 72 going on 73. And people in this decade of life, they die. So (laughs) I really, I really want to, I want to just like, be like the most gorgeous peony, you know, just just like send it all out, you know, and then you go. So, so that's the really fun part of it for me. And, and also to be able to make a contribution right now, you know, it's a crazy time and getting our hands on the steering wheel of our lives through money is like one of those pinholes of opportunity in a world that seems pretty crazy. So it's it's great to talk about that and to actually start to think about what would an FI world look like? You know, what would a world like with FI for all? What if everybody were financially secure and financially free? What would that even look like? Is that possible? Why would it be desirable? How can we have a more just society where everybody wins? So this is also really interesting to me and uh, the opportunity of surfacing again, Eve stumbling out (laughs) off of her (laughs) island, you know, um, you know, with gray wild hair, you know, just like coming back into the world to make like a really, hopefully a contribution. That's the fun part. The book part, you know, to write a book is a job. Yeah, right. (laughs) But the fun part is to share it. Well, it's, and I'm so excited that you came down to the basement to share with us today, Vicki. The book is Your Money or Your Life, Nine Steps to Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence uh, for the four people that don't know what this book is. Uh, as I mentioned before, nothing against how-to books. You can read all the how-to books that you want. That's fantastic. But really, I, what I love about your work uh, and Joe's work is the philosophy behind it. Because once you have the philosophy behind it, then all the how-to books kind of fall into place, right? I feel like there's a lot of how-to books, but you got to have that philosophy first. And this is a fantastic place to start. 
Yeah, I think that financial independence, the 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 first level and maybe the most important is freeing your mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. You caught me with, with a mouthful of coffee. <laughs> you got to talk longer than that, Vicki. No, I'm kidding. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with us in the basement. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. Thanks. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I've been practicing juggling for days now to get ready for today's big performance for Joe's mom. But it's frustrating. It started with three balls, and that was beyond hard, so I decided to start with just two balls. But, you know, then handling two balls is something that I've never been good at, so I've been practicing with just one. It's been going awesome. In fact, I'm juggling one ball now while I dish out your trivia. Been doing it the whole time. Check out how I can do both with today's trivia question. How many balls were the most balls juggled at one time? I'll be back with the answer, and I'll still be juggling this one ball like a champ. Stacking Benjamins is supported by Magnify Money. Here's what bothers me. People will drive across town, right, to comparison shop like a pair of jeans or or a comparison shop, whatever. But when it comes to the money that we use every day, we don't think about the products we use. We just walk into the local bank and we say, what do you got? Well, guess what, folks? Welcome to the future. If you head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash magnify money, At Magnify Money, you're going to find the best when it comes to checking accounts, savings accounts, all those debt products you use, like for your credit card consolidation, or if you pay your credit card every month like you should, you know what you get then? You get reward points. Or if you need a car right now and you have to have an auto loan, why not shop at a place where they shop many, many different car loans, student loan refinance, whatever it is, Magnify Money has it if you use it every day. Be the CFO of your family. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash magnify money, the place that makes it easy to compare, ditch, switch, and save. We're also supported by Lexington Law. We teamed up with Lexington Law, and mom is so proud because they're offering everybody a free credit report summary and a credit repair consultation. Who does Lexington Law help? Well, guess what? If you're looking for a home mortgage, or if you think there might be issues with your credit, who does Lexington Law help? Anybody looking for a home mortgage, I'll tell you who else they help. There are surprises all the time on credit reports. I'm, I was always amazed when I was a financial planner how many problems there were with credit reports. And people had no idea that there was even a blemish until, guess what? They go to apply for that home loan and surprise, you can't get the rate that you wanted or you can't get a home loan at all. So to get the credit you reserve, use Lexington Law. And what's the benefit? Well, Lexington Law has long-standing relationships with all three of the major credit bureaus and their deep experience in knowing how to get errors removed helps the Lexington Law team to communicate more routinely and efficiently on behalf of their clients and with their clients. Lexington Law tackles correcting errors on credit reports through three levels of credit repair to ensure that every client's needs are met. That's Lexington Law for credit repair and peace of mind tomorrow. For a free credit report summary and credit repair consultation, head to lexingtonlaw.com forward slash SB.
Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's juggling neighbor, Doug, back, and I'm still juggling. In fact, pretty frustrated, actually. I've been juggling this ball the whole time, and Joe just stormed down the stairs and said, I'm dropping the ball. Check it out. I haven't dropped anything, Joe. In fact, I haven't done any of my errands all day so that I keep going. Just juggling this one ball. I'm focused. How can he say I've dropped the ball? Hey, two words describe Joe. Inobservant. But enough of him. Let's keep this ball in the air while I deliver today's trivia. Oh, almost dropped it there. Here we go. Okay, today's trivia question. How many balls were the most juggled at one time? The answer, on April 3rd, 2012, at the Roehampton Squash Club in London, Alex Barron managed to juggle 11 balls with 23 consecutive catches, which to the juggling community qualifies as a feat as going long enough. 11 balls, 23 catches. What about one ball with like 200,000 catches? I'm at least at that point, nobody's made a trivia question about me. I wonder if I could juggle while calling the Guinness people. Let's find, whoa, good, good, go on, yeah, okay, yeah, we're good, we're good, we're good. We're gonna find out, see ya. The one ball Doug doesn't drop. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think Doug gets what, what you're talking about. That may not mean what you think it means, but that's okay. That's yeah. just another day here in the basement, man. And big thanks to Vicki Robin for coming down. I love this idea that so many people are working their whole life for this uh, delayed gratification that someday things are going to get better. And um, not going to make you happier, man. Not going to make you happier. What are you working for? What's the, I love the ROI on joy, right? What's the return on investment? Like how much joy can I get per dollar is I think just this big aha that so many people need to have. So thanks to her for coming down, sharing that with us. Hey, let's throw out Taven Lifeline, OG. And why don't we tackle some of life's, or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on what you value most. Student loan payoff and student loan payoff and new SEC rules. Bam. Yay. Yay. Or your money and your time. But actually, new SEC rules mean you might have to take some time to read them. Nah, they'll get all vacated in court later. Forget about it. Yeah, good point. Save your time there. See, you're saving money on not paying attention to any rules, saving money on your life insurance. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's a win-win. It is great. Uh, your family and your time are the two that Haven Life helps with. Why they created a simple way to buy affordable and dependable term life insurance online. If you go to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, I'll tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find my favorite online calculator for how much insurance you may need because it doesn't give you one. I, I can't stand OG, these places that give you one number. I like the ones that give you a range, right? Because life oh, insurance is a range. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get your free estimate for coverage and to learn about life insurance the modern way. Today, we're throwing out the Haven Lifeline to our good friend, Karen. Say hi, Karen. Hi, Doug, Mom, OG, and Joe. I have a question. I convinced my husband to get a high-deductible medical plan with an HSA. Now, do we use the HSA money or use our savings for the $4,000 deductible? How do we invest the HSA? Can we keep the money to use when we're retired? I'm not quite sure on these things. Thanks for all you do, and I never learn anything except from Doug's trivia. Have a great day. 
Which is a perfect place to learn, Karen. Thanks for the question. How does she use the HSA now, OG? An HSA has the opportunity to be a really long-term savings and investing vehicle. But basically, the reason that you get to use it is because you're sacrificing that high deductibility of the medical plan. So you got to pay a lot more out of pocket in order to be able to use the HSA. Those things go together. Kind of the rule of thumb that I like is make sure that you've got an entire year's worth of maximum out of pocket and your plan's going to be different. Every plan's a little different. You have to read your plan to find out what your max out of pocket is in cash. Uh, because if something really goes wrong, that's where you're going to go to to use that money. Right. right? You can't. You can't afford to have that be, you know, volatile in the stock market. Everything above that, I think, is safe to have invested for long term. And you're right. You can use that for long term uh, health care costs in retirement. And it's actually got a ancillary benefit in that there's no taxes at all on any distributions over 65. And generally speaking, there's no time period in terms of those distributions either. So technically, if you're like 30 today and you put all your money into your HSA, max it out for the next 35 years, but you never take a dollar out of it, all of your out-of-pocket medical expenses, you can then at age 65 say, now I'm going to reimburse myself for those. And boom, you've got tax-free income for however long it takes you to get all that. Now you got to kind of sort of keep records of that for 35 years. You know, maybe you want to or maybe you don't, but um, nevertheless, it's a great long-term savings vehicle. Certainly can be used for today purchases, but I think the big win with HSAs is to be using it for that kind of late in life healthcare costs. Well, think about it that way is that, yeah, is that money doubles. I mean, you're, you're spending the interest later. You can spend the capital that you put in it today, or you can spend the interest tomorrow. Yeah. Several years ago, Fidelity, and I think they updated it recently, but they, they came out with a report about uh, risks in retirement and and one of the biggest risks was healthcare costs, of course, and they put a number at about 250000 So if you're retiring at age 65 today, you need to have two hundred fifty grand that you carve out of your entire portfolio that that just is your, quote unquote, medical cost bucket. And that's the average cost for a two-person retirement in today's dollars. Well, that's not the cost. That's the amount of money you'd need set aside today to pay the cost you know, over the next uh, 30 years of your life. So if you can have that already set aside, so to speak, but have it set aside in a HSA plan uh, as you get closer to a retirement time period, I think you'll be real happy. Good stuff. Thanks for the question, Karen. Uh, we also get letters down here in the basement. And today, Doug just brought down this one from Jason. Listen to this. Jason says he recently left a company. He worked there for three and a half years. At that point, our department became contracted. Same colleagues, same building, different employer, different benefits. Five months after becoming contracted, I decided to put in my resignation. I'd accrued six to seven weeks of paid time off with the company prior to becoming contracted. So that's going to be important later. He's got six to seven weeks of paid time off and 70 hours with the new company. The arrangement was that our paid time off would roll over to the new company, sort of. When we became contracted, we were not paid out our paid time off, but we could continue to use it as we wanted, and we continued to earn paid time off time with the new company contracted. However, the newly accrued paid time off time was set up in a different bank, and we couldn't use that paid time off until we used the old time off. Follow him so far? Sure. Furthermore, he says, when and if we resign, we'd be paid out our paid time off that we'd accrued with the first company, 
But if we were to leave before one year of work with the second contract company, we'd forfeit that paid time off and be paid out the pre-contract paid time off time. When I resigned, they made a mistake. I ended up receiving two paid time off payouts. The amounts were different. One was for 130 hours and another was for 200 hours. Doing the math, 200 minus 130, those 70 remaining hours are what I had accrued with the second company, which they state they will not pay off with less than a year of service. In my case, they did pay out. I should have received 130 paid time out payout total. However, both companies, because they didn't communicate, paid me 130 hours each. And then the contract company paid the other 70 that I'd earned but wasn't supposed to be paid. Recently, somebody from HR noticed this and they were asking that I send a check back for the 200 paid time off hours. I don't feel the second 130 hour paid time off payout belongs to me, but the 70 hours that I'd earned feels like it should stay mine. What's my obligation? What are my options? Particularly concerning the 70 hours of paid time off I earned uh, was paid, but wasn't supposed to be paid. Love the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Wow, Jason, paid time off. Uh, I love it when you get a big check, that, that, but I hate it when they say that's not your money, right? I don't know what your legal obligation is here. This might be a great question for an employment lawyer, you know, spend a, f- a few hundred bucks and call somebody and say, can I buy an hour of your time at, you know, yes. a coffee shop? My gut tells me that you have no obligation to pay it back. They're the ones that screwed it up. They're asking that you send it back, which they have every right to do. But I'm not sure that you have an obligation to turn around and say, oh, well, I'm sorry about your error. Here you go. But if there's a contract, if there's a contract that said he's only supposed to get X amount of money and he got Y amount of money instead. I mean, you yeah. see that you see banks win that all the time, right? I mean, not all the time, but but you see this in the news. Somebody gets paid money by a bank that wasn't theirs. They go, they spend it. There was that one story in the news six months ago, the woman that started a whole new business with this money that wasn't hers and she was using somebody else's money to, to make more money. The bank turned around and said, whoa. I don't know. I think there's a difference between ill-gotten stuff, right? Through fraud or something like that. And I don't know if that's what you're talking about or or in this case. So I don't know. I, I agree with the first part of that. dilemma, I guess, yes. more, than, more than anything. You got to kind of decide on your cosmic bank account if you want to make a withdrawal at this point in time or right. if you want to make a deposit. Those are entirely up to you. My feeling, um, my feeling, Jason, goes along with what OG said at the start of that. I think this is an employment attorney issue. I'd watch out for uh, how much work they do for you because you don't want them to swallow all your money. Uh, so by an hour, remember you're on the clock, uh, when you yeah. meet with employment you can, you attorneys, can, there's all sorts of firms and usually you can find a referral, you know, a friend of a friend that knows an attorney or something, just post something on Facebook or Twitter. I'm sure you'll find somebody that knows somebody that'll be happy to entertain your call. I'm kind of curious what the answer to this is. So if you do find out, let me know. It reminds me of a story that I had personally, that was kind of similar to this. And our attorney said, yeah, it's not your obligation to, to pay, pay it, it back. back. It's uh, theirs to not screw up. It wasn't a large sum of money, but I, f- I felt like um, in my case, it, I kept it because <laughs> I was like, well, you know, you know, sorry. I told Don't this, make mistakes next time. I told the story before, so I'm not going to get into it again, but I had that happen at a Taco Bell. They give you like three extra tacos and you're like. I, no, they totally gave me back a ton. Of, like I handed them. I handed them a five dollar. Oh, yeah, I handed paid. them a. Uh, that, see, that's kind of that feels a little ill-gotten, doesn't it? Handed them a five dollar bill, 
I should have gotten twenty. Should have gotten like a dollar eighty seven back. Yeah, I got like a ten, a five, a one, and they gave me back a ton of money. And uh, yeah, that was a long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And now you don't go to Taco Bell anymore because you know the next one somebody will spit in your food. Well, Just, it won't. It'll be random, but you'll be the one that gets the random. Well, I went into a Taco Bell once. Luckily, I had a ski mask on because there's a picture of me hanging. <laughs> wanted that works, works a lot better. You're like. Just jamming your hand in your pocket going, I want some tacos. And so, like, sir, take what you want. 25 years later, that $13 that I got from that dude who couldn't count, the interest on that is horrible. I probably owe them. Yeah, he's like the guy from uh, Billy Madison that's just like holding a grudge for like a really, really, really long time. (laughs) He's like, you know, got the, like all the people that, that, you know, from high school that he holds a grudge against, even though he's like 45. Yeah, Taco Bell in Coldwater, Michigan. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll say that. Been a long time. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for today. Nothing like ending our show. But anyway, so that's how I stole money. How did you steal it? That's <laughs> uh, not good. Hey, uh, that's going to do it for today. Thanks a ton, everybody, for listening. Thanks to everybody who left a review of this year's show. In fact, mom is putting a bunch of these on the refrigerator. And this one is on her fridge today says you have been warned exclamation point five stars says warning don't listen to this podcast if you like the current podcast you listen to joe og and the crew are so entertaining i find myself skipping episodes of other podcasts in my feed just so i can get to the latest episode of stacky benjamin's great show how about that thanks a ton mom's very very proud and uh if you haven't left a review of the show just to let people know what the heck they're getting into You can do that either at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, we're found on Spotify now. And I'll tell people this too. If you have an Amazon Echo, you can do this. Hey, Alexa, play Stacking Benjamins podcast. Getting the latest episode of Stacking Benjamins. Here it is from TuneIn. Alexa, stop playing the Stecking Benjamins podcast. Sorry, something went wrong. See, that's exactly right. Right. That's what happens when you try to I can't stop. stop. <laughs> can't it's, stop, won't stop. It's still going. Yeah. Alexa, stop. Sorry, I can't. I don't I seriously don't know how Open to. Open the pod bay door. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa, stop podcast. I'm not sure what went wrong. Deleting all Stacking Benjamin podcasts now. No! Alexa, stop. Alexa, please. <laughs> Alexa, launch nuclear warheads. Seriously, what do you say? Alexa, pause podcast. Sorry, something went wrong. <laughs> See, something goes wrong when you try to stop the show. People are people are going to figure out our evil plot. <laughs> Once you start the podcast, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. Just say, uh, say, uh, Alexa, pause. Alexa, pause. There it goes. All right, it isn't a plot, and it's and it's neat. Right now, it's through TuneIn. In the next week, uh, it won't even be through TuneIn. It'll just be straight away and uh we're bringing the same thing to google home so uh gonna be fun oh gee very cool all right doug take it from here man what should we've learned today so what did we learn today first take some advice from vicky robin 
Are the balls you're juggling ones that really make your life better? Are you making money for any purpose or just going through life blindly? It's never too late to adjust course. Second, how about Robert Farrington helping people pay down all that student loan debt? If you're struggling with student loans, decide whether you need a repayment plan or maybe a refinance of your loans and then go on the attack. Pretty soon, you'll be the one helping other people with their loans. But the big lesson? I haven't yet stopped juggling this thing. And now Joe's mom says I'm dropping the ball. I haven't done anything she's told me to do all day just so I don't drop the ball. This family has some real, real problems. I'm going to avoid doing any of the stuff they want done around here just to show them I am definitely the guy who does not drop the ball. If anything, Joe's the ball Joe's the ball dropper here, Mom. Not me. Not me. Joe's the ball dropper. Special thanks to Vicki Robin for joining us today. How cool was that, huh? You'll find her iconic book, Your Money or Your Life, wherever books are sold. Thanks to Robert Farrington from The College Investor for joining us today. Check out The College Investor audio show wherever you're listening to this podcast. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks to OG for realizing I haven't dropped the ball on anything yet. But he did say that maybe helping Joe's mom do the dishes would help her see that I haven't dropped the ball. I don't quite see how those completely different things go together, but okay. Has everybody totally lost their minds? Oh, gee, you're not making any sense. I am a great juggler. Welcome to the after show, the part of the show that doesn't exist. Uh, a podcasting friend of mine, I got to roast him in February at uh, this podcasting conference called PodFest. He teaches a lot of people how to podcast, has a great podcast on podcasting called The School of Podcasting. But he was he was talking about this, this uh, John Mulaney bit. You familiar with John Mulaney? Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, John Mulaney looks like he's 13. 
but he's super funny. And he's got this uh, bit uh, that Warner Brothers has made available on YouTube and 1.2 million people have heard it. We're going to have another three people hear it right now. Um, so this is, uh, this is John Mulaney and the Salt and Pepper Diner. I want to tell you one story. Uh, this, this was the best meal I've ever had in my life, all right? This happened when I was 11 years old in Chicago, Illinois, where I grew up. And it took place at a little uh, restaurant called the Salt and Pepper Diner, which was a family restaurant in the city. Yes, yes, you know the Salt and Pepper Diner? It's a wonderful family restaurant in, in Chicago, which means that it caters mainly to teenagers and homeless schizophrenics. <laughs> Now, I go into this place one day uh, when I'm 11 with my best friend, John. And I should say that his name is also John. I'm not calling myself my own best friend. It's a separate human being. I should have said, by the way, when we started this, if you've got kids in the car, uh, we're going to be beeping out some words here. But if you don't even want to go there, you might want to play this uh, when you're alone. I, I should probably have said that before I started. But back to John Mulaney. into the salt and pepper diner one day and they had a jukebox there all right and the jukebox was three plays for a dollar so we put in seven dollars and selected 21 plays of tom jones's what's new pussycat and then we ordered and waited here's the thing about when What's New Pussycat plays over and over and over and over and over again. The second time it plays, your immediate thought is not, hey, someone's playing What's New Pussycat again. It's, hey, What's New Pussycat is a lot longer than I first thought. And it has like a dip in the middle. You know how some songs have a dip, like, like Guns N' Roses, November Rain? You're like, hey, November Rain's over. No, it's not. There's more. The third time it plays, you're thinking, maybe someone's playing What's New Pussycat again. The fourth time it plays, you're thinking, whoa. Someone just played What's New Pussycat four times. Or at least, someone played it twice, and it's a really long song. So, the fifth time is the kicker. Now, we're watching the entire diner at this point. Most people have gotten wind as to what's going on. And we're staring at this one guy, and he's sitting in his booth, and his, like, hand is shaking while his stupid kids jump around, and, like, he's been onto us since the beginning. And he's staring at his coffee cup like this, and he has this look on his face like, aw, like he just got his 30-day chip from anger management. And he's staring like this, and the fourth play fades out. It's dead quiet. And then, I don't know if you know this, but the song begins very subtly. What's new, pussycat? And the guy goes, and pounds on the table, and silverware flies everywhere, and it was fantastic. <laughs> but a word about my friend John and what a genius he was. Because when we were first up at the jukebox and we were punching in the What's New Pussycats, right? I'd punched in about seven. And then John says to me, hey, 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 wait. 
Before we drop in another What's New Pussycat, let's put in one It's Not Unusual. And that is when the afternoon went from good to great. After seven What's New Pussycats in a row. Suddenly, dum da dum it's not unusual. And the sigh of relief has swept through the diner. People were ecstatic. It was like the liberation of France. You know, for years, scientists have wondered, can you make grown men and women weep tears of joy by playing Tom Jones's It's Not Unusual? And the answer is yes, you can. As long as it is preceded by seven What's New Pussycats. And on the other hand, when we went back. Holy shit. It's not unusual, fades out. Dead quiet. What's new, pussycat? People went f***ing insane. No one could handle it. No one could handle it. And they were surrounded by this, like, seemingly indifferent staff, you know, that was just like, yep, same as always. My only wish is that one of the schizophrenics had stood up and been like, now you know. Now you know what it's like to live in my brain. They unplugged the jukebox after 11 plays. And that was the best meal I've ever had. Thank you very much, San Francisco. This was great. Thank you. John Mulaney, what's new, Pussycat? That gives me a whole new idea of things to do. (laughs) Slippery slope, man, from listening to it. To, to being the person doing it. Love it. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.